Hello, and welcome to Speak Up Louder, stories for justice, change, and collective awakening. Brought to you by The Empowerment Project, a global nonprofit organization that co-creates sustainable well-being culture in the pursuit of global well-being equity. This episode is one in a series that we're offering to highlight conversations with some of the incredible facilitators on our signature conscious activism training. These episodes will give you a glimpse into the course content, which has been thoughtfully designed to support you in cultivating sustainable well-being culture and in innovating and organizing change work for yourself and your groups and communities. If you're interested in learning more, either about the upcoming live version of the course launching in the fall or in the self-led online version, head to our website at ompowerment.org. I'm Julia, founder of the Empowerment Project, and I'm so, so honored to be here today with Nadia and Ava, two incredible members of the Empowerment Board. We're going to talk a bit about social justice, what it is, what you know, why we're here, essentially, why Empowerment as, as, as a nonprofit exists. Um, and so I'd love for Ava and Nadia to just take a minute to introduce themselves first before we get into it. Nadia, do you want to start? Hi, I'm Nadia. I'm a yoga teacher and a writer, and I've been a journalist for a really long time before that. I started teaching around about uh, 2016, 17. Um, before that, I've been practicing yoga for sort of over 25 years since I was since I was a teenager, and the practice has obviously changed over time. Um, I was really interested in the Empowerment Project because of the experience I had teaching, actually, mainly in London, and just finding lots of challenges within sort of, you know, what's now become the yoga industry, which wasn't an industry when I started practicing. And just noticing that there weren't a lot of teachers who looked like me, there weren't a lot of people practicing who looked like me. And just questioning some of the ways that yoga was being taught. And so because I was drawing on the way that I teach and the way that I teach is to, you know, it's all about trying to encourage people to own the practice and to also find their own way with the practice. So, um, you know, like moving away from dogma and moving away from like a sort of teacher student kind of vibe really, and kind of like trying to, you know, we're all, we're all kind of the same. I've just maybe trained, trained for a little bit longer, but it's about really sharing tools and then seeing people. Nothing gives me more joy than seeing people going and owning the practice and taking it um, with them. Uh, because it's you know it, it's a practice for you and and for me and but we all practice in our own way and I'm Ava and I'm also a yoga teacher I've been teaching since 2016 and I'm also a facilitator creative facilitator I like to help people in their quest to be together which includes honoring people's differences and I like to use a creative approach to do this in honor of people's spirits and people's life force as we come to recognize our differences. Mm. Thank you so much to both of you. And you know, for those of you who don't know me, I um I have almost 20 years now of experience in the foreign policy and foreign aid sector. I, I specialize in conflict resolution and post-conflict reconstruction. And 
And, and I founded the empowerment project and, you know, to be completely honest, like the, this, this charity came out of a real passion for social justice work, which is a huge, a huge statement and a huge definition that we're about to get into. But, you know, having seen a lot of the things that I've seen, I also grew up um, in the global South. I grew up in China. And so my whole life, I've been really, really aware of inequality um, in in the world. I've been really aware of my the access to resources that I have as a person in, in a white body. Um, I've been really, really aware of how other people around me haven't had the same level of access. And, and I've also seen through a lot of the work that I've done throughout Africa and the Middle East and South Asia um, that there's a lot of work that's being done in the name of the social justice space that really is doing more harm than good. And that's why I, one of the reasons I created Empowerment was to try and try and rebalance that a little bit, to bring all the expertise that I had in creating community-centered programming and really elevating the voices of the people who are quote unquote being served instead of perpetuating this top-down approach of, I have a skill, I'm going to give you the skill because you need the skill. And so that's why we're here today. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means, why we're all here, um, and what we can do moving forward, right? So so social justice, like, what is this? It's I feel like it's it's a word that's so, it's a phrase, I suppose, that so many people throw around and I mean, we've, we've started to hear about it more, right? Especially in the past five years, I think with the election, I'm trying to, I will, I will do my best not to make this too US centric also. And, but luckily Ava and Nadia are here to help me with that. Um, you know, with the election of Donald Trump, with the Brexit vote, you know, it's, we've seen this global uncovering of um, dynamics that have been a reality for a really, really long time. Right. But they were, it's, it's like, some of us knew that they were there. A lot of us, especially maybe people who aren't in white bodies, I'm guessing, knew that they were there, but nobody was really paying attention because it was able, we were able to sort of, we were able to not pay attention. We what we white people were able to not pay attention. And with the election of Trump, with the Brexit vote, with the pandemic, right? All of these social injustices, all of the inequity in society is really, it's impossible not to see it anymore, right? It's so, so clear. And but I, what I mean by impossible not to see it anymore is even if you don't agree that it exists, it is still impossible not to be aware of this conversation, I think, um, at least in the global north or the U.S., U.K., Europe. Um, I, I can't really speak as much to, to the global south, but it's impossible not to at least know that this conversation is happening now. Right. Um, and, and with the. Um, murder of George Floyd with like the, the Black Lives Matter movement moving, like gaining momentum in the U.S. and abroad. It's these conversations are coming to the forefront and more and more people are talking about these issues. So what is it? Because to me, sometimes when I say social justice, it feels a little bit like even though it's work, I've been doing what feels like my entire like 40 years of life on this planet. Like it still sometimes feels a little bit like, what does this even mean? Like, what, what is it that I'm talking about? Um, and so just by way of giving you a definition from, from my perspective, you know, when I think of social justice and what it means in terms of the work that I do, the way that I show up in the world, the way that I even orient to space and to people around me um, is a basic fundamental belief 
in the fair distribution of resources, opportunity, and privilege, right? So at least what I've seen in the world and what I believe to be true is, you know, this doesn't exist, right? Um, we don't have fair and just treatment for everyone. We don't live in a world where there's equal access to resource for all folks. And the reality is that that when you don't have equal access to resource, right? Like access to resource defines your, your position, your positionality, your access to power. Um, and, and so when, when we live in a world in which that reality doesn't exist, in which there are folks who aren't offered access to opportunity and, and resources, there's injustice. And that injustice actually impacts all of us, whether we're in bodies that um, do have access to resources and therefore are like have privilege, um, or whether we're in bodies that don't. Uh, this in, injustice impacts every single person on this planet. Um, and so when we talk about, so or at least when I talk about social justice, you know, I'm making an assumption that we all live in a world in which people are put into social groups. Right. And this is regardless of whether whether or not you want to be in that group. I am a white person. I am a female. Um, I present as female and I identify as female. Um, you know, I am differently abled in, in but it's an invisible disability, right? Like I that's these are the groups that I'm placed in. And I might not want to be in that group, but that's the way that society views me. And every person on the planet is lumped into groups because for some reason as humans, that is how we have decided to do things. And so because of that reality, right, that grouping of people, of, of like, if you will, people does have an impact on access to resources, access to education, access to opportunity. And so for me, the social justice space and working in this space is about noticing where some groups have access and some groups don't. And, and obviously there's intersectionality and like differentiation between the groups. And we're talking a little bit more about that um, in other sections of this training, but um, so it's not all a, all like a, you know, one, you can't just like lump people into one group and say, everyone's the same is I guess what I'm trying to, to say. And there are ways that we present in the world that, that will determine our access to power and our access to resources. And so this, for me, social justice work is about noticing those, noticing that reality, identifying it, learning about it, acknowledging it, doing the work to understand my own access to power, my own access to privilege, my own access to resources so that I can better show up in a space where I'm working to create more equal and equitable distribution of resources for everyone. Um, and that's what this work means to me. Um, I, as I mentioned in my bio, I, I grew up in China and China was still poor when I was a kid. And this was something that I saw, you know, I walked through the streets, I was a white body and I was one of the only white bodies. And I noticed it. Like I noticed that the kids in my Chinese school class didn't have things that I had. Right. Um, in the work that I've done throughout the world, I noticed these things. I noticed that I get elevated for some reason, like, for, for no reason other than I am like the white person with the, with perceived as the white person with the knowledge. Um, and so to me, this, this work is very, very personal. Um, and it is really my, my, I mean, it's my life's work. It's my passion. Um, but I would love to hear Nadia and Ava, what you two think, like, what does social justice mean to you? It, it, it is this like big term, right? Um, what, 
when I say the word social justice, what does it make you think of? Either one of you. (laughs) Mm. Thanks, Julia. Yeah, I feel like there's, I mean, there's, I relate to what you just said. And also I feel like social justice for me is really a framework of seeing the world and also acting, participating in the world aimed at resisting the unfairness and the inequity of the culture that we live in and making a commitment to enhance freedom and possibility for all people. And that looks different to different people. Um, Resisting unfairness and inequity might mean elevating certain people's participation in society and certain people's voices. And it might mean certain people um, stepping back and kind of allowing more space for other people to, um, to, yeah, to have their voice be heard or to access resources. And um, it's crazy because I really feel like, I feel like the elevation of the status of white people and the perceived, um, I guess, the perception that white people are inherently um, more worthy, intelligent, um, all of these things. I feel like this is a mindset which has really moved across the whole planet. And even I was recently in um, in West Africa and Ghana and that what you were saying about, you know, being in China or somehow you always feel like you're, you're assumed to be the one with the knowledge. This is something which is really is a is a pandemic across the whole globe I feel and so it's really important that all people people of color white people etc etc all people are kind of aware that this is playing out and as much as possible um in the process of of resisting those assumptions which really engender self-hate in people of color actually um which I've definitely experienced personally, but I, and I know that other people of color have also experienced that. Um, It creates a lack of self-worth, which doesn't just affect how we are in society with one another. It affects everyone on a personal level of self-esteem and a personal level of, of belief of what is possible in our lives, what we are capable of. It's, I really feel like anything that's personal is somehow a collective issue and anything that's a collective issue is somehow personal as well. Um, This is like, for me, seeing it with a spiritual understanding is that we are all microcosms of the macrocosm and vice versa. So if we're experiencing um, self-hatred and a lack of acceptance for ourselves, then on some level, that is also what's happening in the collective and, and vice versa. So, um, yeah, I feel like it's something that needs to be tackled on both levels, on a personal and a collective level. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ava, for that. Nadia, do you have anything you want to add? I mean, do you, how do you, what does social justice mean to you? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, you said that it's, you know, quite a big, it's such a grandiose, in some ways, such a kind of, you know, grandiose term but I mean to me it's it's quite simple really I mean it's 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 about human rights it's about equality and um in simple terms you know I mean that's kind of essentially it and you know we do live in a world where you know particularly in the UK where I live and have grown up you know that's obsessed with 
it's, it's very divisive, you know, and obsessed with class. And, you know, there's going to be rich people. There's always going to be poor people. They make the rich people rich. You know, there's always going to be imbalances everywhere. Um, and so oh, this work will never be finished, I think, in my, in my view. You know, we'll always be resisting and, and pushing. Um, there's so much to do. But I think, it's, you know, just going on what, what the point that Ava just made, I mean, I really agree and relate to the, the thing about, sh- well, you didn't say shame, but, you know, the, did you say shame? Um, the, you know, I didn't, but there is shame there, definitely. Um, in a sort of internalised kind of thing by by sort of hel- heralding, you know, sort of like, Giving the um, the status to the to the white to to the whiteness, um, but in my experience, you know, my mother didn't sit me down. I, I had a single mum, and she didn't sit me down and have a conversation with me and say to me, you know, you're you're going to experience this kind of thing in life. You know, she, my family, I come from a family of immigrants. We just got on with it, and you know, I learned through my own experience of life, and I think things caught up with me. So it wasn't a case of like me noticing very early on in my life. I lived most of my you know decades of life before I realised that maybe other people had more privileges, privileges than me. I noticed it because I had more privileges than others. So, you know, it's not just about white and POC. It's about within POC communities, there's hierarchies. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that makes makes complete sense, but I think I think it's just a case of like, you know, this creeps up on you is, is kind of quite a key thing for me to just say. that. And I, I'm very conscious of, um, you know, why can't everybody have access? Um, and also, I think for those of us who do have access, it's kind of down to us, really, like what Ava was saying about stepping back. And, you know, I think often, I mean, I'll, I'll close just final point. I think often I find um, just since I've been speaking more about social justice in terms of I don't call it social justice. I just call it whatever I'm talking about at the time. But, you know, if I'm talking about um, marginalised and I think that word's used quite a lot, but I just think about people getting shoved out of the way um, when I think of marginalised. And, you know, but inadvertently by people who are kind of perhaps claiming to be really aware of social justice issues, um, but they're so busy trying to sort of talk about what they're doing to make for a better world that they've actually squashed the people out who could they, they could just push to the front and we could just hear from them. Um, you know, so I think that's quite important. Sometimes it's actually a case of just noticing, looking around the room and thinking, who have we not heard from yet, rather than talking about you know what we're doing that's going really well because I think sometimes that goes on I don't know if I've drifted away from the point but social justice just to sum up I think is is really just about fairness and equality and um there's always going to be someone who isn't getting getting their lot and so I think we just have to scrutinize and look all the time and just see who's missing at the table and you know whose voice are we not hearing Mm. can I add one thing to that Just that last thing that you said, like who's missing at the table. The truth is that even if we don't necessarily, even if not everyone is realizing, we're at a loss if someone's missing from the table. Do you know what I mean? Like, actually, the way that I see it, the way that we can live in richest community and richest understanding of who we are and richest participation, where the most can come to fruition from us being together is if there is a wide and diverse group of people there to speak about loads of different experiences, different ages, different abilities, different ethnicities and life experiences. When that kind of group is together, when no one is quote unquote missing from the table, I feel like that's when we have the most chance at having a a really fruitful and fair society. 
So yeah, I just wanted to add that because I I really like what you said there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thanks to both of you. It's you know so much of what you said is really is is really landing, um, and is so so important. I and mean, gosh, we could we could spend hours just 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 talking about everything that you just said, essentially, and elaborating on it. But you know, I think to both of you in different ways made this point of you know it's. It's not, it's, this is a, injustice is occurring on the individual level and on the collective level, and it's all connected. And it's, and where there is injustice somewhere, there's injustice everywhere. Um, By which I just mean, you know, even if I am not personally feeling the brunt of injustice, if it's not my body that's being attacked, I am still impacted by the injustice that's occurring through throughout the world right because this is a collective experience we are all in this game together whether we agree with with people who think think otherwise or not um you know because at the end of the day i at least at least in my opinion injustice is trauma oppression is trauma um and you know, you, you both spoke a little bit about intersectionality. And again, we're going to talk about that, that later as well, but, you know, there are so many different facets of this work. You know, I look at, and I hope that this isn't too controversial, but certain political factions in this country that have really been in this country being the United States, really actively upholding white supremacist culture um, over the past few years. And, and, you know, I've been in a lot of conversations around this and there's no part of me that agrees with what they're saying. And if we're really going to look, take a social justice lens, right, if we're really going to look at what's happening in the world through a trauma-informed perspective, at the, that, even their viewpoints, their, this culture that they're trying to uphold also comes from trauma, right? And it comes from not being seen, not being heard, fear of loss. Um, and this happens a lot in white communities, right? Like, oh, well, we don't want to work for equity because then we're going to lose something, right? Instead of focusing on the, why don't we just make sure everyone has what we have? There's this focus in some in some parts, in some communities on, well, if somebody else gains something, that means a loss for me. And that feels traumatizing, um, you know, and, and these are, it's a lot of poor folks. It's a lot of, you know, people who haven't had access to education, white people without access to education. And so again, there's, I don't agree with what they are saying. And I think if we're really going to take a wide lens and look at injustice everywhere, it is an important thing to remember at times. Um, I don't feel I can work in that space, but there are people and they are amazing and God bless them. Like good luck with, I, I think it's amazing work because we all need to be in this together. It is a collective trauma. We're experiencing collective trauma and there are groups and, and, and specific individuals that feel that trauma much more on an individual level than on a, than on the collective level, right? Like we, we see, we've seen through videos showing up on, on YouTube, right? Certain people are actually subject to trauma simply based on their identity, based on race, religion, gender identity. You know, for example, um, in the U.S., um, transgender individuals, I read somewhere, are 28%, I think, more likely to experience physical violence than those who identify as gender normative. 28% more simply because of this aspect of their identity, right? And that's a shock trauma. That's an intentional active oppression, genocide, hate crimes, police brutality. These are shock traumas, 
right? And they're they're coexisting alongside the larger developmental trauma of implicit or invisibilized acts of oppression, employment discrimination, education discrimination. I believe this is true in the UK, but please correct me if I'm wrong. I know it's true in the US. If you have a name that doesn't sound white, quote unquote white, um, on a piece of paper, on a resume or on a CV, you're less likely to be called back for a job interview. Mm. Um, and there have been like studies done around this. Like there was, there was a, I think it was a black woman who sent in a resume with like a quote unquote white sounding name. And then like another resume with, with her real name or something. And like comparing, I'm, I'm probably getting some of the facts of this wrong, but you know, like that's, that's a really, mm. it, you know, like that's more of the developmental trauma. That's the invisibilized aspect of what's going on. And it all comes together, right. To create this reality of a world that we're living in, in which we all need to learn how to cope and respond with the existing trauma, the existing injustice in a healthy and functional way, while also seeking ways to like, to build something new, to find a new way to meet like the needs of everyone. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, just thinking about what you said, I have a friend who um he, he's Muslim and he has like a, 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 a typically Muslim name and he can't even get he really struggles to even get car insurance with his name, like to put himself on the on the car insurance thing, which is mad, really, if you think about it. Um but sorry, I just wanted to kind of go off the back of what you were saying. Um, and just really reiterate that hurt people hurt people. And I feel like we see that in so many, especially like post-colonial um, situations where, you know, whether it was the British Empire or other empires that moved into countries. And since then, there's been a reoccurring kind of history of trauma that's happened and re-traumatizing new populations even with um, the Jewish population, you know, being kind of assigned, if you like, to to Israel um, by the by Britain at the time of the of World War Two, and I mean, this is just my personal view on it, but I feel like some of that trauma has kind of been redistributed in marginalizing Palestinian people, for example. Um, but it really, it really is true that any trauma or harm done is not just a loss to the person who's being or the community that's being oppressed. It's also a loss to the person or the community that is oppressing because being oppressed robs a person or a community of their agency and of their power, but being an oppressor robs a person or a community of their humanity and of the experience that actually we are all connected, like just bringing it back to the spiritual understanding, like we live in two different realities. We live in an ultimate reality and we live in a relative reality. And in relative reality, you're Julia, you're Nadia, I'm Ava. We all have different colored skin, you know, different educational backgrounds, different, different physical abilities, all of these specifics. And then in ultimate reality, we're all energy and awareness. And this is, this is, you know, a spiritual understanding of it. And, you know, we all come from source. There is a connection there. There is an interconnectedness, whether you just see that on a scientific, scientific 
level of of physical matter recycling itself or whether you see it on a on a spiritual level as well as that we are all part of spirit and part of creator so when an oppressor is oppressing another person or community it's kind of like denying that ultimate reality and for me personally being able to connect to ultimate reality is such a resource in my life um, that I wouldn't want to feel continually cut off from being able to experience life in that way and being continually oppressing I mean obviously look we all we also live in a very global and capital capitalistic society where actually it's quite quite difficult not to be oppressing in some way actually so I'm not going to say that oh my god no like we never oppress anyone ever like the truth is it's actually very difficult not to be causing some harm because of the way that globalization has kind of is leading us but to be continually living in a way where you're con- consciously creating a lot of oppression I really feel like that is a trauma which white people are holding which creates an amount of numbness and separation which I think also leads to further appropriation of other cultures in order to kind of seek some kind of spirituality or some meaning it's like yeah I could go on and on about this but I really feel like definitely it just perpetuates this cycle of disconnection and and hurting more because if you can't feel then you're not going to feel if you're you're causing harm you're not even going to feel the harm that's being done to yourself there's just something something to add on that actually if I may um just I was just struck me that um you know there's all often I think with oppressing as well like with oppression particularly in the modern modern world that you know, I get the sense that there's a bit of denial or perhaps a lack of um, introspection, like you've just said about you know um, missing out. If you're not kind of thinking about what you're doing, then you're not going to know what you're doing. And I think sometimes there is because of history and like you mentioned the empire, you know, particularly in the UK, you know, there's this huge, you know, the NHS for example. I was thinking about that earlier. The NHS is free. It's the National Health Service. It's been um started in the 40s and you know the first people who worked in the NHS they had a shortage of staff so they got um nurses from the Caribbean from Ireland sorry then they got them from the Caribbean then they needed doctors who came from India and Pakistan and you know if you fast forward to modern day um England the UK um the racism that's so rife in this country is all you know it's immigration has always been a problem here for so many people you know it's the big the scourge that this country faces and then you think about but they're in denial and they're they're sort of oppressing people who are living now people like I suppose my generation um and a bit before me and and go back to where you came from and that, that you know we're in a complex situation here because I was born here but also you know, these same people are the same people who who would like, you know, hold up the NHS as this wonderful thing and then forget the fact that it would have collapsed were it not for immigration. So I just think I may have gone slightly off piece there, but I think it's just so interconnected. And, you know, it's denial comes up for me quite a lot because I sometimes think, you know, educating oneself and 
um, is is really the first first point, isn't it? Really, and then in order to understand where the oppression isn't so obviously isn't so obvious, is what I'm trying to say. I think necessarily, I think to people who are doing it, they you have to have a look for it and then realize what's going on, the effects of your actions. It's it's um, what you just said about the NHS, Nadia, makes me think of. Um, okay, forgive me, anyone who's not American. The football thing that just happened, European Cup. Yeah, for sure. Basically, they right. just you know they they wanted they were one minute like ninety minutes before everybody wanted these black players to win the World Cup, uh, the Euro Cup, and then um, within finishing because they missed the penalties or whatever. It was just absolutely abhorrent. I mean, I had to, I just couldn't watch it. I mean, it's just incredible. I, I mean, and so, I mean, and I lived in the UK for seven years, so I do have some under, and we have soccer here in America too, but, you know, as somebody who watched this from outside of the UK, I had a different experience than if I was still living in Hackney, right? And I remember, you know, first the memes, right? Showing what the UK football team would look like without immigrants. And it's like one person, Right maybe two it's there's 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 not a team you can't play and then you have just like this really i mean racist reaction to this loss and and i remember also seeing a lot of information about statistics of domestic abuse rising in in the wake of loss and 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 so it's all just to say you know again like moving back to to the trauma piece like this is trauma work social justice work is 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 work in the trauma space, right? Like those three footballers, footballers, football players, you know, like that, that what we saw happening to them, what the, the outcry that we saw, the, the fighting, the violence, the, the, you know, the things that were being said on the internet, that's trauma. That's like, that's a, that's a very direct attack, right? And how it lands in their body. I can't say, because I don't have their experience. Right. But but for a lot of people, that would land as as, as shock trauma, I'm guessing. Um, and so when we're speaking about this work, when we're talking about social justice and the work that we're doing in the world and and all of these communities, like the trying to bring equity back into this space, we're talking about doing trauma work. Like you were saying, Ava, right? The uh, hurt people hurt people, right? How do we get to the root of that the trauma healing? Well, also centering like the fact that yes, okay, the oppressors have their own trauma and that needs to be, that needs to be something that's worked on. And because they're perpetuating a trauma that feels much more direct, that's actually putting people's lives in danger in this moment. How do we attend to that? How do we create a space in which we're doing all of this work simultaneously? And I don't mean one individual person because that's just way too much, but as a collective, as a community that's coming together doing this work, how do we make sure that all of these pieces are coming together to create a more just world in which we all have access to resources, right? Because you know, you were saying, Ava, the spiritual aspect of it, you know, trauma shapes our bodies, it shapes our minds, it shapes our hearts. We show up in the world based on our experiences and what we're holding in, in our body. And without doing that level of work. It's hard to even think about how we move in the world and create a space in which we're meeting everyone's needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a quote by um, by Resma Menachem, which I feel to just to just put just say here because it's so relevant to what you're saying is um, trauma decontextualized in a person mm-hmm. looks like personality. 
Trauma decontextualized in a family looks like family traits. Trauma in a people looks like culture. And so I really hold that in what you're saying, that these things, we kind of, yeah, they, they become abstract when we are not necessarily, for example, generational trauma, um, ancestors of, um, of slaves. It's like things, they get decontextualized and we're not exactly sure what it is, but it comes out as personality traits of, of a group. Whereas actually sometimes, sometimes it's actually unresolved trauma. I think for sure it is unresolved trauma. And I think that's where it comes back to kind of recognizing that one, you know, we ourselves could be holding trauma in our bodies because um, it's very easy to, to think that you haven't, if you've got an idea of what trauma is and that trauma only affects, you know, people on in war zones and, you know, um, like I did for a long time, um, you know, I thought that I didn't have any experience of trauma and I didn't really notice the trauma that my family had potentially been through and maybe sort of like has been passed on to me. Um, I'm still maybe trying to identify that. I feel a duty to do that. If you're going to do trauma work, I think you have to do, do your own trauma work. But then I think that can kind of like ripple out into the collective, you know, we need to, we need to look at our own trauma and identify it. It's not an easy job though, is it? It's a, uh, it's a challenging long life's work to, to identify, but I think it starts with accepting that it exists. Um, you know, like you said, it looks like these in that lovely quote, you know, it looks like these things, but then I'm always wondering, you know, well, I wonder where that's coming from, but also recognizing that we can't always, I suppose the more we learn about ourselves, the more we can sort of preempt, you know, what we might do and how we might pass it on. Cause that's the work, the last thing I'd want to do personally is to pass on mm-hmm. something that I'm holding but just recognizing that, you know, we can go gently and just sort of like, just be thoughtful about the way that we behave, but also continue tending to our own trauma Mm -hmm. or looking for it if we're not sure where it is. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Especially if, um, if a person is uh, interested or engaged in doing social justice work in this particular way, working with communities who might be at risk or marginalized, for example, I feel like the importance is um, magnified. How important it is for us to look at our own, our own trauma and our own um, our own shadows in this way. For example, if I hold a deep feeling of inadequacy, I'm going to project that onto other people and potentially see other people as inadequate and continue to do that until I, until I come to terms or realize where the trauma of that inadequacy has come from. Mm. It's, it's such a key point. And, um, you know, especially like in this work in communities, the way that I've seen it, it's, it's exactly what you're saying. I, I feel like you know, there's, there's the conversation around like equality versus equity, justice and liberation. Right. And, and there's this beautiful, there are two images actually, which, um, for the training we'll, we'll put up in the resource section. One is, um, three people, uh, who are looking uh, over a fence at a baseball game or, or cricket, depending on where you are in the world. And, you know, there's one person that's tall enough to see over the fence. And then there's one person that's too short. And then there's one person that's in a wheelchair. Right. And so then there's, 
there's this equality model that comes in. Okay, so everybody gets a crate, one crate, same size, right? Equality, everybody gets the same thing. Everyone has an equal access to a resource, right? And so now the tall person is like towering over the fence. The short person can just barely see and the person in the wheelchair is still like, I got nothing, right? So then, then, and then it shows like the third images of the equity model, right? The tall person doesn't need a box. He already has access to the resource of being able to see this game. The short person needs the box, right? So now they can see over the fence. The person in the wheelchair needs two boxes, right? So it's 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 this beautiful graphic that just like so like perfectly really shows this this work we're trying to do of of really thinking about what is it we're trying to do, right? We lo- we love to talk about equality. We, oh, let's everybody's equal. Like oh, I've I've never seen you know. You hear p- white people, especially who are just starting in this work. I don't see color. Everybody's equal, right? And I'm not saying that that's not a microaggression, but um, it's you know these are things that you hear. And and when you really think about what does equality mean, giving everyone the same resources, it's really this way of kind of glossing over the fact that we're all starting at different places. Right. And that's why I think, you know, just to connect back to exactly what you were saying before this, this need to do our own work, to recognize where we are, because I think at least what I've seen a lot in the, in the aid world and in a lot of projects that I've, I've worked with is, especially in the white community, there's a lot of this idea of it's, I don't know if it comes from ancestral guilt uh, of colonialism um, and, and slavery, but this, this real need for white saviorism to go into communities and be like, I'm just going to give all the things because I have them. Right. And that's, I, I guess maybe could fall under an inequality model kind of, except it really does a lot of harm. Right. Because by not looking into their the ancestral trauma of, you know, that, that even brought them to this space of, and another thing you see in the, the aid world a lot too, is, you know, people trying to heal their own trauma by working with the communities that, that they associate with. So for example, survivors of sexual violence, working with, you know, uh, women who have survived trafficking or something, right. There's a lot of that as well. And it kind of feeds into this, right. By not recognizing and acknowledging where you are, where you're sitting and what you're sitting with, um, it, it creates this dynamic in which you're actually in a way perpetuating that trauma and perpetuating that dynamic because the lack of awareness um, creates a space in which you're acting from that place, if that makes any sense. And, and thereby creating solutions to problems, creating programming, for example, that focuses on this equality ideal of, well, this is obviously the answer and I haven't really done a lot of research. So let's just give everyone the same thing and call it a day without actually looking at the root causes and thinking of how can we create equity? How can we create fairness? How can we like bring everyone to the starting line first so that we're all in this place together and then move towards equality? That's justice. That's liberation, right? It's like another meme or cartoon that I saw where it's like, two people running uh, like track and field, I guess. And it's like a white guy with like a a clear lane ahead, no obstacles in the way. And like a black woman who has like a swamp and some barbed wire and like 10 hurdles. And, you know, so they're starting at the starting line and it's the same distance, but obviously different experiences in getting there. How do we, how do we remove those obstacles? She needs a jet pack basically. Yes. 
Exactly. Like, and, and that's what this work is about, right? Like that's what social justice, it's not about giving everyone the same thing. We're not going to go around the world, giving everybody like a box with a book and an apple and call it a day, right? Like this is how, how can we look in ourselves? How can we look and not just individuals, but like the collective trauma of what the obstacles to liberation are and remove them so that we're all starting at the same place. And from there move towards equality. I don't know how that's landing for the two of you. Yeah, I feel like definitely there is a difference between equity and equality. And um, yeah, I mean, sometimes language, it's like, oh, there's so much, there's so many specifics and so many different terms within um, in us trying to describe and, and access the truth of this work. But I do feel like the difference between equity and equality is that in order for things to be just and fair everyone needs something slightly different and that's equity and equality kind of just feels like a bit more of a blanket everyone is the same gets the same kind of situation which doesn't necessarily always address the subtleties of of the different approaches and needs that people might have in different communities um but I want to just, oh yeah, that's another thing. So I, I listened to this podcast recently um, with Brene Brown and Priya Parker. And um, uh, Brene Brown, I feel like needs no introduction. <laughs> she's just an amazing, I find her so amazing. Um, she's like a, a cultural researcher kind of person. Um, and she talks about shame a lot. And then Priya Parker, she deals with conflict resolution as well. And and um, and helping people to gather, you know, and and to be in community with one another. And she was talking about our our um, return to gathering and and even working in spaces together. And a lot of us have been working online, working from home for the last year or however long. And in um, going back into the office, she was speaking about equity in a way which I hadn't really thought about before. It's like actually everyone is going to have a different um, level of ability to just return to working in an office. Some people will have structured their lives now that they have to take care of their children. They have to be at home for some reason. Access to the office is going to be more difficult for some people. Maybe they're going to be further away, living further away from the epicenter of the city for economic reasons or all kinds of different reasons. And an equitable way to approach that would be to look at different ways in which everyone can still participate to working together and meeting without everyone needing to be in the office. And maybe it's a case of for some meetings, she gave this example of some people being in the office and some people being at home, but everyone going to a quiet space wherever they are to participate on Zoom. So everyone can show up equally. And actually it kind of, it felt like, oh God, but what if we've come into the office and we want to just be together, you know? But the example that she was giving was actually to make those people who have to be at home for some reason, to make them feel included in an equitable way. Maybe we would we would make that sacrifice of everyone having to be in the same room and everyone just participates from their office, whether it's at home or in the in the building of the office. And then at some other time, then company resources are brought towards bringing people together in a way that feels more possible. Just an example. Just to jump in real quick. I mean, I haven't heard the podcast episode, but it, it 
it's it's a huge conversation. And I hear a lot of my friends who are disability activists, for example, saying when the pandemic first started and companies seemed to like overnight just allow give all of these allowances for people to work at home. My friends who are disability activists were like, hey, we've been asking for this for a couple of decades now. Like, cool to know that you can do it. Uh, we've been looking for this for a while. Right. And, and they're still in this space of like, great, we know it can be done. Like now these like allowances need to be kept. Like exactly like what you were saying for people like us who have never had the opportunity to do things because of the way that like ableist, I mean, this is that society is typically ableist. Right. And so it's interesting to hear that. Um, and, and to just, yeah, to think about it from that perspective of we've now created it's the pandemic in some ways, like also created a way for us to like rethink how we engage with the world. And it really benefited some people who had been completely invisibilized for so long. And so now we need to like keep those lessons moving forward. So I don't mean to like go off topic or, or take space from you, Nadia, but that just came to mind when you said that. Nani, do you have anything you want to add on on anything we've talked about or the equity, equality, liberation? Um, no, not especially. I mean, I think I think you've you've sort of covered most of it. I think the, I, I, the only point that really struck me was um, perhaps that um, you know the idea of going and giving, and that you were talking about white savior complex. I think uh, earlier, and um, you know, it's interesting because I, I just think that. There's nothing to be really gained from. Um, there's no progress, I think, when when there's that imbalance of like giving and receiving, and also receiving. It's I don't know. I was just thinking about it from my point of view, like as quite a privileged person myself. That you know, so if I would feel indebted if I was being um, given stuff to to help me rather than being taught how I could help myself, you know, um, which is going to have longer staying power and also a really good way for you want to feel good about oneself is to be in charge of one's own life and I think um so yeah that's just the only thought that sort of crossed my mind really um and it's it kind of comes through the way that I like to teach but yoga um and just just in you know just in terms of the way that we live really I think um it's, it's interesting isn't it this need to give because charity doing charity is, is meant to make us feel good mm-hmm. and you know is that why we're doing it and I don't think there's any harm in us feeling good by doing it, but it's just, we just need to look at how we're doing it because is it really benefiting the other person if, you know, we're just giving them resources and, you know, not empowering them in a way mm-hmm. that they can empower themselves. I think I'm more interested in that, you know, that's proper. That's mm-hmm. proper mm, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that and there's just so much much wrong with that idea for me of like going and 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 giving to a community with the idea of that I'm I'm the one with that's going to be able to save these people it's like in any interaction there's going to be an exchange and actually in serving I feel like I can receive just as much as as I might offer do you know what I mean? And I think that that definitely needs to be taken into account that anyone going to, for example, I've, I've taught um, classes to different uh, groups, in particular um, asylum seekers or, or refugees and, and particular communities. Um, and I've always, I've learned so much myself. Like it's not a situation of, it's just a one-way exchange that I'm going to go and just 
teach this thing and then leave. It's like, actually, it's a privilege for me to be able to, to, yeah, to be in a, in a room, in a group with people who can teach me as well, teach me about culture. I can absorb something from their essence, their life experience. It's just not going to be a one-way thing where I absolve myself that, okay, I've gone and helped and then it's done. The thing that you said about guilt, Julia, and, you know, potentially white people holding guilt around white supremacy and colonialism and all of these things, they they definitely need to be taken into account and not acted out in a shadowy way to kind of, for white people to feel like they're absolving themselves of um, of responsibility just by going and kind of, and helping other people. And I do feel like sometimes... You also gave the example of maybe someone who was a survivor of um, assault or, or or sexual trauma going and and feeling like that person wanted to to help other people who have been um, victims of similar trauma. I think that there can be a shadow, but there can also be a golden motivation in things like that. Like for example, me, I have definitely had experience of my in my life of feeling othered feeling outside of just dominant society and and um and feeling a lack of acceptance and even though that is something which I personally need to take responsibility for and kind of healing within myself that has also drawn me to work with other communities where people might experience um, being othered or feeling outside of. And so there can be, you know, golden in that. I also think that our traumas, if we can kind of access them and kind of face the, the, them in the, the terror of what they are, they can also set us free into really finding like more purpose in our lives as well. So there is something about kind of, yeah, accessing that as well. Absolutely. I, I mean, and that what you just spoke of is so powerful because, because you're right. It's, it's the, at the, at the end of the day, sort of like how we started this conversation, we we're talking about what is social justice? What does this even mean? Right. We named at one point the need to do your own work, right. The, the need to understand where you are, what you sit, what you're holding in your body. And, and that's so important because how that will, that, helps determine how you show up in space. So you're right. Like the shadow side can come in. Um, if you're trying to, if, if what you're do, doing is trying to heal your own trauma by serving, right. The shadow side is going to come forward, but if, but there's also the capacity. And I mean, I'm, I hope I'm doing this through my work. This is my intention anyways, um, of using like the experience, using what I've, what we've learned from our life experiences to create uh, pathways for others so that they can have uh, similar access to resources, if that makes any sense. And I think that's like what you said just so beautifully brings us sort of full circle in this conversation of, you know, stating the need, right, that there's unequal distribution of resources. What do we do about that? To, okay, well, we don't have any like cookie cutter solutions to offer you, but we can talk a little bit about what things might look like. How can we reduce harm? How can we create sustainable programming in communities? How can we work towards justice and liberation for all in a way in which we're trying to at least mitigate harm 
to the extent that that's possible, because there's there's always going to be some dynamic, like you mentioned, Ava, especially in this like capitalist world. Um, I think of like two examples from Africa, from some of the projects I've worked on. For example, in Tanzania, there was a project where there was food aid that had been uh, coming into a community, and it was meant uh, it was a humanitarian response, it, like that came from famine, right? So it was meant to be short term program. People need food. They need it now. And like, this is going to be short term. And what's supposed to happen is that that's followed up with sustainable agriculture and, you know, all these other ways of like creating capacity for communities to then re-engage with their abilities to feed themselves. Right. But that never happened. And so what happened is that now 20 years on, there's this whole community of people who are like, why bother working? We're just going to get the delivery at the end of the day. Right. And that's not that's a trauma in and of itself, right? People have been given handouts for so long that they think that they don't have anything to offer anymore, right? And that's terrible. And that that is, you know, so it may be like the people who are giving the food aid may may think we're doing this great thing. And I'm not saying feeding people is bad, <laughs> feeding people is great, but, you know, just sort of like the way that that perpetuates over time, there needs to be more thought put into that. And, and just as, as sort of like a, juxtaposition to that, you know, another program in Kenya, for example, it was a, a girls education project program. And, um, you know, a lot, I've seen a lot of people around the world say, oh, well, we're going to target like access to education by building schools, right? Which almost is never the problem. And in this one community in Kenya, the reason why girls weren't going to school is because they turned 12, 13, got their periods, like didn't have access to sanitary napkins missed a week of school a month and dropped out, right? That's that's a problem that's not going to be solved by building a school. But it takes having these conversations. It takes speaking with the people who are actually, like, who don't have access to the resources, right? Like, speaking to the women and the girls and learning that they didn't have this access. We would have never known how to sort of flip that injustice, Right. Had we not actually had those conversations, if we were just looking at equality and like building schools and like sending out books and stuff that would have never been reversed, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, And so I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I'm just trying to (laughs) to sort of bring us full circle in like, what is it that we're talking about and, and how does this show up in the world? Right. I mean, I wonder if each of you could. If it's not too big of an ask, like offer your dream, like your hope for what this, what this work looks like in the future. What, like, how can we come together to do better? It's a big question. I know. Wow. Um, how can we come together to do better? I mean, the first thing, which is, I can almost just see the words written in my imagination is like, make this deeply personal, Mm. make this work deeply personal. Any problem that I see out in the world, I try and think like, how does this relate to me personally? And I want to tell a story, which is actually like quite vulnerable story for me, actually. So I, um, I traced, so my ancestry, my, my heritage, I'm half Indian Gujarati and half Ghanaian. Um, and I've done quite a bit of tracing of my ancestry, um, in particular on my, my dad's side, the Ghanaian side, And I found out that I have an ancestor from the 1800s who was half Akan, which is a a cultural group within Ghana, and he was half Scottish. So his dad was Scottish and he was the first, basically, that 
you know, had this, this ethnic mix. And he lived in Ghana. And he was actually, um, he began working as a slave trader. And so the privilege that his dad afforded him, um, he had land and he he owned a plant, he owned plantations and, and slaves in Ghana, basically, um, in the capital of Accra. And, you know, finding out about this, which I found out maybe about three years ago, this, this part of my history, and um, learning about it felt really deeply shocking and hurtful in so many ways. And I felt like I was kind of ancestrally oppressed, but also oppressive, you know, and, and learning that both of those things were inside of me. Um, and, you know, there would have been some privilege afforded from being in that position. I mean, I know that I'm also have, I'm descended of, of slaves in different kind of factions of my dad's side of the family but even just having this one ancestor that wasn't didn't happen to be a slave but he was a slave trader means that there's a certain amount of privilege that would have been afforded from that rather than being on being on the you know the uh, the opposing end and I guess I just tell the story because I feel like learning that I really felt like okay I need to make this work deeply personal I need to to see how this is coming from the inside of me and what part I might have to play and and not just look at things necessarily in black and white, but learn about the intersections of this work and not be so keen to, to point the finger at other people necessarily, but also look at my, my own parts in whatever situation it might be. And also to understand what shame other people more particularly white people might be holding around addressing inequity and history of oppression and colonialism and all of these things um learning about this history and learning about my ancestry in different ways and other trauma that my my family have gone through even on my mum's side as well has like really helped me to kind of yeah be more feel like this is more relatable like it's something which is directly related to me I think especially now because social justice and equity and and kind of anti-racism these are conversations which are happening happening quite frequently like I go on social media and I just flick through my my Instagram feed for example and I can just see like loads of posts from from so many different people speaking about this and I'm not like uh, I'm not necessarily criticizing all of that, but I just feel like the way that we can really make this deeply transformative is if people look at it from a really personal lens and being like, what part do I have to play in this? How am I perpetuating this? How have my family perpetuated this? How can I change it? I was just absorbing all of that. I think I think um I completely yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think the first thing I was thinking when um, Julie was speaking earlier was was about the personal because I think everything has to start with us, um, and having a deep understand, deep and thorough understanding of you know one's own position um, is where it has to all come from. I also often have, uh, like you were saying that you can see the words, I I often think about listening and I use that in the broadest sense, you know, because often, you know, through 
different um, body practices, you know, we're often told to, or we might say to people to listen to their body. And, you know, for a long time, I used to hear that when I was younger, I didn't really know what that meant, you know, because, you know, my body isn't really, hasn't got a loud voice necessarily, or it's not really, I don't really know what listening means, but I think cultivating a practice of listening to, to yourself, whether it's your body and then emotional body, um, well then hopefully, you know, the idea I have is that it would co- come out and then you'll be listening to others as well when you're ready to. But I think a really key thing that you just brought up about actually about the social media stuff, one of the things that um, I noticed specifically after George Floyd was murdered was there were a lot of people um, talking about stuff. Um, it seemed very quick that there were a lot of like, you know, not people of colour necessarily. Um, I think the people of colour who were saying stuff, I wanted them to keep saying stuff and, and I wanted to listen. But there seemed to be a lot of people who were... Maybe it was a mixture of guilt that like you've talked about, Julia, or maybe it was a mixture of guilt and panic and inadequacy or who knows. I don't know. You know, I'm not um, a psychologist, but it seemed like there was a lot of rushing. It just seemed like maybe just take a minute to just pause and listen to what's going on, what people are saying, and then just think what it might mean to me on a personal level, like Ava says, and then think about what, what could my part be in this conversation rather than like hastily waving books in the air that they're reading or to try and prove some point perhaps or to feel part of the gang of people who are now trying to catch up and be on the right side of the fence or whatever does that make sense but I think there's no rush you know like it must start with ourselves I mean I completely agree with what what Ava's saying I think um, whatever your practice is or therapeutic aids are that work it's important to do the work on oneself with oneself and then and then take it outward I think and actually just one last thing to say is that going back to what you were saying earlier Julia and about what I was saying about the um giving I think there's um there's often a danger of a power imbalance you know like that first case study you gave about giving the food aid you know it's kind of like creating an inadequacy and perhaps a kind of apathy also because it's like why should we go and work or whatever but it's also creating a power imbalance because it's like maybe the people who are doing the giving don't realize that they've got the power you know I try to keep an eye on like me moving into spaces and the fact that I'm very aware that I've got the power so it's about using that power wisely isn't it yeah that example really sat with me as well I feel like the worst thing about that is it's kind of perpetuating this you know this belief potentially in the people who were receiving the food that they they're victims basically and which is gonna they're gonna keep acting like that and and yeah experiencing powerlessness and not even just victims but unable to self satisfy their circumstances if that makes sense and so if we go back to even just the beginning of this conversation what is what is social justice right access to resources it that is an important part and we do need to actually do work and in like engage in labor to create equitable distribution of resources. And at the end of the day, every individual on this planet has an innate capacity to to do this work, right? If if given the right tools or not even given, if, if, if everyone has access to the tools, to the resources, every single person on this planet has, has something to offer and skill and capacity and knowledge and wisdom and, and beautiful things. Right. And so by by creating this dynamic in which where there's this top down power imbalanced approach of I'm just going to give so that we create this 
equal situation in which now we both have food. It really doesn't take any of that into account. It's saying it's, there's still that energetic imbalance of I have, and you don't, and therefore it needs to flow this way instead of really considering the fact that the people that are receiving also have a lot to offer right? And are as important of a voice in, if not more so, actually a more important voice in the conversation, right? So how can we find ways to come together and not just redistribute things, not just shuffle things around the board, but to create the capacity in which there's not even a need to do that anymore. How do we change the systems, mm. right? How do we get rid of like the, 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 just the reality that this, that the unequal distribution exists in the first place? Mm. That's why we're here, I think. And I feel like that feeds on really nicely to what the mission statement of the empowerment project is about. Like, you know, we, I mean, feel free to jump in, but when, when I'm explaining this, but I feel like the, we offer trainings of trauma sensitive healing practices to people in marginalized communities and you know, it's not about us showing up every week to teach people a yoga class, for example. It's a training over four or five days where we will teach a group how to lead themselves or their community through a yoga class. It's different to us continually distributing this thing. It's like, okay, here's the seed. Now you plant it because you can plant it. And here's the language that you might you that might help you, but you can plant this yourself. You can do this yourself, and you can share it. And here's uh, um, you know some tips and some skills that we've learned that might help you to do that. But we don't have all the answers. You can you can plant the seed yourself, basically. And um, yeah, that's what we want to empower other facilitators to also do. It's so important to do that because it moves away from the sort of reliance model mm-hmm. of things. You know, it moves away from dependency and, you know, teaching in a way that is going to kind of like give them, plant the seeds, give the tools, and then it's like you can take it on into who knows what you might turn it into, you know, because it's yours now. And I think that's what really excites me. It's kind of like we've got a little part to play and then it's about letting people have the space to kind of, make it their own and serve the community in the best way. Cause it's not a one size fits all, is it? These trainings are going to assist different communities. who might all be marginalized in different ways. You know, going back to the idea of the personal being so personal, different communities are going to have different needs so they can apply and adapt and, you know, adjust, you know, we, how are we going to know how best it's going to serve people? They need to experience this stuff and then organically you know, work out how best it's going to serve their community and just through doing it themselves, you know, we're, we're going to do, just do our bit and then step away. I think, I think it's about knowing when to step away as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Thank you again to both of you for joining me in this conversation. That was amazing and really informative and, and really heavy, you know, I mean, this is work that I, I never feel a sense of closure and I don't think I ever will, right? There's always work to be done, whether it's work on myself or work in my community or work with, with my community, right? It's at least in my lifetime, I don't think that this work will end, if that makes any sense. And so I'm wondering if, since it can sometimes, it, you know, at least I find for me, sometimes it just feels so big, right? 
we talk about these subjects and it's just like, wow, there's so much, like, what can I do? I wonder if each of you would be able to offer just one or two, you know, just small things. Like what could we do today? Right. We don't have to change the world overnight or go and, you know, (laughs) knock down like all of the systems of capitalism by next week. But what's one small thing that we could do to engage in this work? I have a couple of ideas. Uh, They're quite, I think, simple but and practical, but they're um, things to stick to. The one that's particularly coming to mind is be aware of how and where you as an individual are taking up resources. So the idea that comes to mind is um, there's a lot of events now, and especially if you're kind of see yourself as part of the healing community and you kind of go to healing centered events, which are um, potentially priced on a justice um, tiered pricing. And there's different prices depending on different, um, you know, different financial means. Be conscious about where or which price you are choosing there. And if you really need to be taking you know, one of the lower tiered prices, or if you really need to be um, requesting a reduction of price, for example, or if you are capable, you know, in that, in this time of actually paying a little bit more so that someone else might have access to that resource. Um, You could even use this as an example of your council tax bill or whatever it is, you know, like um, in the past I've, I've, um, you know, asked for a discount on my council tax bill, for example. And then other times I'm like, well, actually, I don't need to be asking for a discount right now, because the truth is, if I ask for a discount, then there's less money in the pot that could potentially be used for other services somewhere else. So when I pay less, if I don't need to be paying less, I'm actually taking away from someone else, even though that person might be distant from me and I can't see them. So... I would say be aware of that. Be aware of when you're asking for support. And if you need support, then if there is, you know, the the means for you to have it, then ask. Definitely, please ask. Um, And also one that you might find interesting or a little bit triggering, go at your own pace, is look into your family history and, um, and yeah, to see what you what you encounter and what feelings come up there. Yeah, thanks, Eva. Nadia, do you have any suggestions of some simple things we can do to just start work, like chipping away at this like really massive piece of collective work? Well, I was going to suggest that actually. I think it's I think chipping away, or you know, just realizing the sort of age old line about it being a marathon and not a sprint, and you know, it's overwhelming. This conversation we've just had is vast. Um, you know, this story is never finished. There's so much. So I think, I think checking in and, you know, being, being sort of, I suppose, comforted by the fact that, you know, if you're prepared to do the work, that's a huge, brilliant, like massive thing. Loads of people aren't. So um, just taking time to contemplate and let things percolate and, you know, be paying attention to this Mm conversations like this one and um paying attention just looking at the world and maybe just being aware of in a way you know in, in of, of um, inequality and inequity in a way that maybe you haven't before so i'd say sort of like consider looking through 
looking through a different lens, perhaps. If you like reading books, there's so many books coming out, um, you know, in recent years. I, I think it's probably quite, could, could be quite overwhelming. So I think you can go back to like one of the originals and one of the greats in, in my opinion is James Baldwin. So if you could just pick up anything by James Baldwin um, and read it, there are many titles, um, but you can start anywhere. I mean, he's like, Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Like eat, reading his books, I uh, think like eating dark chocolate, you have to do them slow, do it slowly and savour every one. Um, I could name some titles maybe, like I think um, The Fire Next Time, The Return of the Native, mm. um, and No Name in the Street is really powerful, but anything. Awesome. Thank, thanks to both of you. And, and I'll just add, especially for, um, especially for, you know, those of you in our community who are new to this work or just getting started and don't really know, you know, where to begin, you know, maybe, maybe you want to do the research, maybe you want to learn more, but you're not quite sure, you know, where to begin. Um, if you're on Instagram, even if you're not on Instagram, actually, I think if you just Google it, check out Nicole Cardoza and the anti-racism daily. She's, um, she's on Patreon actually, which is where you should go find her so that you can also support the work that she's doing because it is a massive labor. Um, and she sends out, you can sign up to a newsletter and she, she sends out like one thing a day. So you can learn one piece of information a day. And, and a lot of times there are also like small action pieces that, that she offers as well. Um, and it's a way, you know, she's doing this work. She's creating this body. Please support it. If you, um, subscribe to it. Um, and it's just a great way to learn to, to be in, I mean, I'm, I'm learning something new all the time from her. Um, I recently learned, for example, that tipping culture in America is based rooted in slavery, which I had, uh, no idea about before. So there's, there's all sorts of places to learn and, and, um, and I would really recommend that one. So, yeah, thank, thanks to both of you. Do, does anyone have anything else that they want to say in, in closing this conversation? <laughs> I mean, there's always more to say. The work is never done. And as part of this training, we also have seven other, you know, sessions together. I would just end with the with the phrase, make it personal. I like that. It's been, gosh, such an honor to be here in conversation with the two of you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Julia and Nadia. So thank you for listening to this conversation. This has been a snippet of a larger conversation that we've been having on social justice within the empowerment online facilitation training with a view to trauma sensitive healing practices. And uh, this is a training which is going to be starting in September. We're going to be approaching some different subjects such as social justice, trauma, self and collective care and also conscious activism we'd love for you to participate and join us in this deeper learning and exploration podcast is born of our intention to elevate the voices of our community, including the leaders we serve, the partners we collaborate with, and the experts who inspire us. Through these conversations, we aim to raise collective consciousness around the transformative potential of mind-body practices for individuals, communities in our environment, and the importance of making these practices more inclusive and accessible for all.
हा